Thanks, Frankie. Good morning again. Um, so I'm sure you know that you know when you watch a, a Netflix series or, or or TV series, they sort of have this sort of recap moment where it's you know previously on whatever it was, this little recap. And seeing as we took a break from Isaiah for the shoe boxes, let me just give a little recap of where we are. We're in that chunk, chapter 40 to 55, a chunk where, where God's people are in trouble. They've been defeated, they're in exile. They are downhearted, no doubt. And God is trying to speak hope to them through this prophet Isaiah. But part of the hope is the servant. And we've seen that the servant is Israel. Israel is going to be a light to the nations. But this light to the nations is itself blind. So there's a conundrum here. Israel is the great plan for the world, God's great plan, but Israel itself needs to be rescued. Israel is the servant in chapter 42, but Israel needs a servant. And if you're in Connect Group during the week, you'll see that Israel needs to be warned again and again about idols. They're just tempted to follow other gods in exile. Seems like we need a plan B. If the plan A of Israel is not working, maybe even a plan C, if plan A was Adam and Eve and plan B was Israel, where's a plan C, anyone? That's the dilemma facing God's people at this stage. And what we see in chapter 49 is movement on this servant, who this servant is, uh, that an individual emerges. The language changes. Chapter 42, it was clear that the servant was Israel, a nation. But here in, in chapter 49, we have language which is, is like, like Jeremiah's call or an individual's call, a prophet's call being applied to this servant. Before I was born, the Lord called me. It's individual terms. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Very similar to some of the other calls in the Old Testament. So it seems that we have an individual, that it's not the nation of Israel anymore. That nature and identity of the servant is changing. And we know for sure, I think, that it's not Israel as a nation being talked of anymore because part of the plan in verse 5 is that this servant is to gather Israel to himself. How can Israel the nation regather Israel the nation? It's an individual. Something is changed here. And that makes sense, maybe. I mean, if you think about it, the name Israel was given to an individual in the first place, to Jacob, way back in the book of Genesis. It was an individual. That's how it started off. And now an individual, again, is the source of hope. It seems that this plan B, or indeed this plan C, is beginning to firm up and to take shape. So the person changes, but the task is to stay the same. Verse 3. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. The call, the task, the job of this servant is the same, to display God's splendor. In in himself, in herself, as a person, to show it. And actually, if you look, the call stays the same, but this person then takes on the name Israel. You are my servant Israel. Israel is narrowed from a nation to to a person. A true Israel is going to emerge who can actually live up to the requirements, the demands placed upon Israel and be a light to the nations. And actually in this passage, that task grows. 
It is too small a thing. I love that phrase. It is too small a thing just to, to gather back Israel, to bring back Jacob, to restore God's people, that in fact, this servant is going to bring in others. It's too small a thing, verse 6, to, for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back Israel. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. A new servant to do the same task and actually expand that task to the whole world. That's how it develops in 49, that second servant song. So now you think the scene is set. Israel itself, a whole nation, couldn't fulfill the task down to one person. How is it going to become easier for one person to do what a nation couldn't do? All the numbers are gone down to just one. Maybe some sort of superhero will come and enter the scene. That's where Hollywood will take this, surely. Pick your favorite superhero. You're a Marvel character. Or maybe not someone with superpowers, but someone like a, uh, one of those movies, you know, those Hollywood movies where it's like Jason Bourne or something, where it's, it's a normal person, but actually not really. They do things that you couldn't really quite believe, no matter how good the movie is. Surely some character like this is going to emerge on the scene. Now it's going to be plain sailing. Now it'll be straightforward for God's people because of this servant. One person taking on a greater task than the nation couldn't do. But then we read verse 4. Verse 4 puzzles me when I read it initially. It makes me stop and pause and think, what's going on here? This superhero says, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. There's no superhero. This individual is a human being and faces those struggles. They feel like they have labored in vain. They feel like they're working away, putting all their energy into this, laboring all their energy, all their effort, all their emotions into this one task to do for God that God has called them to, but yet it's in vain. Why am I doing this? What's it all about? Where's the fruit? Where's the growth? Where's the salvation for my people? It seems like he's failed, this servant. I imagine the task that's been referred to is this restoration of Israel. It's referred to again just straight after in verse 5. But we have this sense of failure. Why does the servant not give up? I don't know if you've felt that, that sense of despondency of having labored in vain, a sort of pointlessness. I put all my energy in, but it seems to go nowhere. I wonder, as Christians in Ireland today, we've talked about being on the margins, on the fringe. You used to be at the centre. We got to tell people what to do. It wasn't necessarily a good thing, but now we're on the margins. Do you ever feel a little bit hopeless? Hopeless for the country? Despondent? Pointless? Why does the servant not give up? How do you keep going? Well, let me, I want to tell a story about a man called Raphael Lemkin. I don't know if you know him. I love the story of this man. This should be a Hollywood story, but maybe it's not cool enough. 
Lemkin is or was a Polish Jewish lawyer and he's famous for coining the term genocide and making it a crime. His story is documented in Samantha Power's book about America and the problem of genocide. He coined genocide from the Greek word genos, the Latin word side, Greek means race or tribe, and side, the Latin word means killing, to kill a race or kill a tribe. But it was a long, long journey for him to get there. I've already said he was a Polish Jew. In 1933, he was a prosecutor in Warsaw. He wrote a paper for an international conference that was going to be held in Madrid. This is 33, six years before war breaks out. His paper was on the ascent of Hitler, six years before war. And he linked it to this topic of genocide, even though it wasn't called that, but he had this interest in it since he was a law student um, from the slaughter of the Armenians in 1915. And he linked the two together, that there was potential for something to happen here. And he was going to go to Madrid to warn the world and speak at this conference. Except he wasn't allowed to go. The Polish foreign ministry said no. They were trying to keep good relations with Germany. In 1941, after war had broken out, he escaped eventually to America. As this lawyer and, and intellectual, he managed to get a job in a university in Duke. Um, far away from what was happening, but his eyes and his heart were still on all that was going on in Europe. In 1944, he was appointed to the War Department in the United States government. And there he served as a lawyer, an expert in international law. And he pleaded with the president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, for America to adopt, I guess, a treaty against barbarity and to make as one of its war aims protection of minorities in Europe. The president urged him to be patient and to hold on. During this time, 49 members of his own family were killed in Poland. Despite his warnings, despite his attempts to do something. In 1945-46, after the war, you may know there was the Nuremberg trials. Lemkin was uh, I think slightly involved in this, uh, but he considered it not a full success, only a partial success. Even though people were convicted of the crimes that they did, they were only convicted on, the, on this broad definition of a crime against humanity, but not what was actually going on in his mind, which was a genocide directed against particular people. There wasn't an emphasis that the targets were the Jewish people. And so then after Nuremberg, still unsatisfied with what happened, he started work on a UN treaty to outlaw genocide. He wrote this in his sort of fragments or notes, which were to become his autobiography, but which was never finished. He said, I'm devoting all my time to the genocide convention. I have no time to take a paying job and consequently suffer fierce privations, poverty and starvation. My health deteriorates. He was laboring and laboring and laboring for a deeply personal goal to him. Eventually in December 1948, the UN General Assembly passed the Genocide Convention. Articles had been written in the months and the years before about this man, about this lawyer who'd been behind this move. He had now this, this opportunity to celebrate. Instead, he checked himself into hospital straight away, suffering from exhaustion. 
Lemkin then died in 1959. Seven people attended his funeral. And at that stage, though a treaty had been passed, the US had still not ratified it for fear of its own people being convicted. He labored and labored and labored, seemingly in vain. Why did he keep going? What enables us to keep going, to, to not be despondent when things look hopeless, to, to not feel that, or to feel it but yet persevere to see something else? Because I, I feel that's part of the question of exile. That was the question for God's people, because they have been defeated, and they're there years, and they're there decades, and it doesn't seem to turn around. And it's part of the question for us. sort of feels part of the question for us even as Dublin West. I, I look out this morning and it feels like it's the smallest Sunday gathering we've had. Do you feel hopeless or pointless? How do you keep going? Let me read verse 4 again. This is chapter 49. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. This servant is able to persevere because of his trust and his faithfulness, his faith in God. It's in the Lord's hands. He believes that. He genuinely believes that in a way that enables him. It's not just a thing that we say, though I know that we say that in Christian circles. It's, we know it's the right answer. But it, and it changes his demeanor, it changes his ability to actually keep going and to persevere. My reward is with my God. And we see this again in the second reading, chapter 50, the third servant song of Isaiah. He remains faithful. And here it becomes clear that there's now going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution for him. I offered my back, verse 6, 50 verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. Yet the servant continues. We know when we get to the next servant song, chapter 53, there'll be more detail of what will have to be endured by this servant. So despite opposition, he keeps going. Why, verse 7 of 50, the sovereign Lord helps me. I'll not be disgraced. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. It comes not to the hope that is seen on the horizon, not to the hope that's seen in the momentum that is, is building or is visible in, in the earthly world. The hope is based on the person of God himself and the vindication that that person will bring. And, and that ability to trust seems to me for that servant to be rooted in God, his identity with God. If you go back to 49 verse 5, he says this, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. There's this personal faith that gives the trust, that gives the perseverance, this sense of I am God's. Personal faith, personal relationship, personal sense of honor that enables the servant to continue. In chapter 50, verse 4, we have beautiful words. This sense, this, this servant has been called as a prophet. Verse 4, I've been given a well-instructed tongue. He's to speak. He's one of God's prophets who's called to speak to the people in exile at this stage. We, we will apply him to Jesus in a moment, but here he's a prophet to God's people in exile. But the key to that relationship is not just a one-off gift or an ability that's been given 
It's again this daily relationship, this, this personal relationship with God. So he has a tongue. He knows the word that sustains the weary. But how? Because he wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ears to listen. He has this daily interaction, this, this ongoing relationship with the living God that sustains him, that enables him to fulfill his call. An identity and a relationship that, that gives him this sense of being rooted in God so he trusts this God and so he perseveres. And it's a complete contrast to Israel. That's why he's the true Israel, the new Israel, the, the reduced, small, one-person, individual Israel who can fulfill the task. Because constantly Israel was saying, my cause is disregarded by my God. We saw that in chapter 40 at the start. Here in 49, verse 14, if, we, if that had been part of our readings, it says, Zion, uh, that's the word for the city, and a symbol of Israel. Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Israel is feeling forsaken, disregarded, forgotten. But the servant, what makes him different is this relationship to God. That's what sustains him, that he can fulfill the task. And so we know that these words and the servant is taken up by Jesus in the New Testament. What we don't often think of when we think of Jesus is the despondency that he must have felt at times, the things that he went through, but yet he persevered. I mean, the, the people he argued with most were the people who should have welcomed him, the religious leaders, the people who were there to teach and lead and worship God's people. Constant opposition from day one for him. His own hometown rejected him. So much so that in Luke 4, they tried to throw him off a cliff. I mean, his ministry had barely started. And they tried to murder him. I think I'd feel a bit discouraged at that point. In, in Luke 9, there's the story where the disciples are left trying to, trying to heal and to exercise a demon out of this boy. And they can't do it. They've maybe taken too much on. The crowd are, are, are going after them. Jesus comes down and does it. And he says this to them. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? You can feel it in Jesus' words. Like, why me? Why do I have them? Why do I have to keep working with them? How long, Lord? This is the human Jesus. This is what he felt, that sense of pointlessness, that sense of hopelessness. I'm putting three years into this. And where's it all going? How long? Surely, Lord, at some stage we can just click our fingers and get on with the job here. Or John chapter 6, the sadness that he felt when he said some of those who were following him turned back. Two words, they turned back. He'd got a little bit of momentum. He'd got a little bit of a crowd together. And then they turn back. He's left again with the 12 amigos. And he turns and he says to them, do you not want to leave me too? Do you sense the sadness in that, that Jesus felt? However many it was that turned away, I'm guessing over half his crowd, down to the bare bones again. And even he's not sure if they're going to stay. This sadness that he feels, this despondency, this hopelessness, this pointlessness. But we know that Jesus was faithful. We know that he was faithful. Part of how we know it's talking about him here is in chapter 50, verse 7. It says, the servant in Isaiah says, I have set my face like flint. And that is taken up by Jesus in Luke 9. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
despite the disappointment, despite all that's gone, he's going to persevere and go on, even though he knows what awaits him. Peter says of him, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Despondent, hopeless, yet still believes in the Father and goes on. And it's all because of this identity rooted in the Father. That's what did it for Jesus. That's how he sustained himself. That's how he knew there was hope. Before the temptations, right at the start of his ministry, we have in Matthew, the very story before, I think it's the very last verse, it's his baptism in the river, and he's given these words in public, you are my son whom I love, right before he faces Satan one-on-one for 40 days to see if he can be the true Israel who endured 40 years. And then before the journey to Jerusalem, when he knows he's now coming to the end of his life, when all the persecution and opposition will become really hard, ending in his own death, he has the transfiguration where those same words are said before him. By chapter 19 of Matthew, you are my son whom I love. He needed those words before those biggest trials of his life so that he could sustain himself through opposition and difficulty rooted in his own relationship with the Father, his identity as being a son. So I, I ask the question for us today, for us as, as the church in Ireland and also for us as Dublin West, do we feel at times that despondency or hopelessness or pointlessness? It's part of what the servant felt. It's part of what Jesus felt. I feel it. Do you feel it? Because you've got to name it. We've got to do something with it. Or else it'll just eat away and, and, and be bitter and maybe eat away at the faith. But if we actually name it and say, this is what I feel, bring it to God. Maybe bring it to each other as a community and then move forward. Then we have a way of, 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 of claiming that faith, of claiming the hope that God brings. Rather than just letting it go and bubble on underneath the surface. So I want us to do that. Ireland has changed. The soil is hard. Classic cliche if you go to any pastor's meeting, the soil is hard. Feels like things aren't working, feels like no one has any interest. But will we keep going? From the margins, on the fringe, will we keep going? Or in in, in Dublin West, I just noted that this morning, that feels like this is one of our smallest gatherings. Do you feel a, a despondency within us? What do we do with that? Maybe look back to days and we think things were were bigger or better before for us as a church. And where do those feelings go? Will you name those feelings? Talk about them? Pray about them? Bring them to God? And say, we're going to keep going. I'm a child of the living God. He has hope. I feel that's how we apply it today. When the servant speaks like these, these words, these two songs, the servant, right after in chapter 50, 10 and 11, he puts out the call to Israel of saying, which road are you going to walk? Which road are you going to walk? Are you going to follow my path and be, be the servant who, because he's rooted in the Father, has trust in the Father, perseveres and keeps on going? Chapter 10, who among you I think this is where where the word goes from the servant out to wider Israel. Who among you fears the Lord and who obeys the word of his servant? The one who walks in the dark, who has no light, where it feels hopeless. In the dark, no light. 
but he trusts in the name of the Lord and goes on. The alternative to walk the other path is to light your own fires, to provide yourselves with flaming torches and walk your own path and your own sources of hope to get you through. So I, I, f- I feel we need to face this in some way. We need to pray on it, reflect. I don't want to do what we do at family service and give out a piece of paper. But maybe we'll take this into the week. Reflect on whatever feelings we have that in some way approach or mirror those of the servant, those of Jesus in Luke 4 or John 6, and bring them to God. So I'm going to let us all pray and reflect. And maybe next week or maybe in two weeks when we have communion might be more appropriate. We'll bring them back. And in some way, as a body, as a church together, we'll bring them to God around communion in two weeks' time. But let's name it. Name what we feel. And invite God to come in. Speak to us. Reaffirm our identity and our trust in him. And you see, I feel we can ask these questions and engage in this prayer and reflection in, in a place of hope and security. Because we're not here like Israel, still sort of wondering, is this servant going to come or, or what's the end game here? Because the end game has happened. The servant came. God himself in the person of Jesus entered into his world and he's gathered in his people. He's gathered in us to his kingdom. We are his children. So that's happened. That's a done deal. And we know that this servant has promised that he will grow his kingdom, not us. That he will build his church, not us. So we can ask these questions without fear, but with hope. So let's just pause. I encourage you just to to start that prayer in the silence for maybe two minutes. Well, let's take it in then to the weeks to come. Amen. I think it would be good for us to pray together. We're I'm encouraging us to reflect and pray individually for the next two weeks before we come to communion together. But even now as we start this, it would be nice to pray. So I'm going to open it up that we pray as a body. If you want to pray where you're sitting, just maybe stand up and try and project your voice. The two mics are here if you want you're comfortable to come and pray for the front. But let's just pray. Pray in response to what the servants, what Jesus and maybe what the Irish Church in the Dublin West may be feeling. So, Father God, we come before you this morning. And we lay down some of what we're feeling. 
I know I've been reflecting on this during the week. For for many here, this 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 has landed as a grenade. But Father, we come before you. We thank you that we know you. We thank you that we have freedom to be honest and to explore our feelings and to pray before you. And I pray that you guide us individually as a church these coming weeks to hear what you're saying to us, to hear what we feel in our own hearts and to respond. Amen. So, Father, we thank you that you're with us. And we say to you this morning that this is us. This is where we're at. Father, as we think of the church in Ireland today and as we think of ourselves in Dublin West, Father, we ask that you lead and guide our reflections over these next two weeks till we come back Father help us to recognise our own feelings help us to be aware of how rooted or not we are in you how much we feel or sense your hope and speak to us guide us as to how we respond when we come back and Father, I pray that we do this. We do this as a group, as a, as, as a body, in the knowledge that the servant has come, that he's gathered us in, and that he builds his kingdom. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he walked this path of hopelessness, persevered unto death, utter hopelessness and darkness but then you rose him to life again Amen Amen Thank you for your prayers